The game is the game. Join me, your host, Mashal St. Patrick Hewitt, as I travel on a journey to meet people from a variety of professions to find out what made them excel in their field. Walk with me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first ever episode of The Game is the Game with your host, Mashel St. Patrick Hewitt. Thank you for joining me on this journey, or as I say in the intro, walk with me. I'm honoured to, to have as my first ever guest on this podcast. I can't even believe I got him. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I said that I would not start this podcast unless I could get him on first. And we're calling this one the one with the author. And it is, of course, the great... Musa Kwonga. Musa, my man, how are I'm you honored. doing? I'm honoured, man. That's how I am. I'm honoured. My goodness, to be in the place. This is first time I've been first at anything, man. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it all comes to us at some point in our life, you know. <laughs> Listen, this, you, you've end. officially now made it that I, I said that I cannot do this without you being number one. But you know what, Musa? Ascended, uh, man. I've before ascended. I actually say to you, like, how you're doing and, and all of that, I think this is it's really important because... The thing with these podcasts is that not everybody reads the descriptors for a podcast. They'll right, see right. the name and they'll just click and they might read the descriptor at the end of the podcast. So let's get this out of the way. First things first, because yeah, yeah. when, when, when I made the approach to you, part of me in the back of my mind was like, what am I even going to introduce Musa as? And I've called this episode, the one with the author. But then when I started thinking about it, I was like, but you're more than an author. <laughs> yeah. What? So actually, let me put the question to you. Who is Musa Kwonga? First and foremost, in terms of what I do, I'm a writer, I would say. I'm a writer. It all comes from words. Um, so yeah, and I love that you call me an author because that was always the dream to start with, like starting out 10 years old, looking looking in bookstores, looking under the surname section of O and going, imagining my surname, what Kwonga there, imagining like a couple of books on that shelf. So I guess, yeah, in my heart, I've always been uh, an aspiring author so I, I love that you that you see that um, i've done other things along the way we'll probably get into that at some point i'll just mention those in passing but yeah first and foremost uh, i'm an author i'm a writer brilliant that means i've got the descriptor right that's the best we're, <laughs> we're off to a good start but i but i hasten to add anybody who is listening to this episode you may not have come here because you see musa as an author which is why i started like that some of you may be here because you were first and I use the word, uh, quote unquote, introduced to Musa through another medium. And, and that's full power to you, Musa, because you have dabbled in so many different fields. So I think it would be quite understandable for some to actually have come to you for a different a different medium. I could, yeah, have, yeah. Said, I could have said the one with the musician. We had, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> my God, wow. <laughs> I didn't even think Taking about that. To, to go down that <laughs> angle as well. Um, but but Musa, we were talking um, backstage, so to speak, before yeah. before I press record, and I, I I said a line to you, and I said ultimately the aim of this episode and all episodes on the game is the game um, is about speaking to individuals for, in different fields and working out and understanding how did they get to their final form, mm. and I'm not trying to to be presumptuous here Musa. I'm not trying to say that you are currently now in your final form and you are at the stage of life where you're like yes 
I've made it. Although you may be. <laughs> I don't know. You, you may be, but certainly having charted your career from afar and in recent years a bit closer, um, I certainly feel that you are a lot closer to where you would have wanted to be mm. if you could maybe have interviewed yourself 10 years ago, possibly. Absolutely, so it's yeah. about charting that journey and for those listening, helping you to understand that everybody everybody has frustrations. Everybody has setbacks. Nobody jumps from day one straight to final form. There, mm. there, there, yes. are, there are pitfalls along the way, and it's just about unpicking those and how you managed to do that to get to um, to where you are today. Um, yes. But before I go any further, Musa, just, I guess, in a general sense, would you say that that's accurate, that you feel that you're closer to your final form? Oh, my God, absolutely. I can tell you a specific story about why I feel that way. So I was with some friends, um, fellow writers in Berlin a few years ago, We'd all been invited to a dinner party. And what was amazing about these friends is, and they're still, you know, great friends of mine, they they invited a bunch of writers along, some of whom had had big literary success, some of whom were like trying to get to the next, the other side of the line. And I said, you, so think about you as writers. And I said to them, I said, the thing about two of them in particular, I said, you're, you're on the other side of the line. You've made it to a point where you're always going to get regular work or interest in your work and you're just going to get a ready stream of, of stuff to do and i'm not there yet i'm not on that side of the line mm. and i just want to get there and it's not it was never a jealousy or an envy thing it was like you've made it i'm delighted for you i need to get to that side of the line and they were like oh you need to like write a book you need to write a particular book that cuts through that's what it is go and write the book that like you need to write and they were totally right like because that happened and i wrote that book while well, i wrote the project that there's a couple of projects that I produced in the years since that conversation that took me to the other side of the line. When mm -hmm. I talk about making it, it's not a complacency. It's more like I know from now on what the path is. There's more stuff I've got to go on and do, and I'm very excited about that. But the reason I feel like I've made it over that line is it feels different. Like mm -hmm. the way you're contacted for work and the way you're commissioned for work and the way you're paid for work, it's all different to even five years ago in a way that is incredible and like it's a the sensation of it is a euphoria i could not if you told me it was going to feel this good i wouldn't have believed it because it feels even better than i dreamed it would interesting and already i've got <laughs> as yeah. you talk i'm like thousands of questions start entering my head but let me try and keep on track <laughs> and, and not get layweighed by, by your responses. Good, um that's great. And I'm, I'm glad that you kind of given that as almost like the intro to mm. where we want to get to. But we I think we should go back in the story to sure. kind of piece the to kind of piece it all together. And it's it's interesting because my first and I've never told you this, my first introduction to you as a person, and by that I mean not knowing you at all and just through work, was actually your written pieces in the Guardian. Wow. Um, and I'm thinking you I'm gonna say 2010, 11. Oh my goodness. 12? Jeez, dude. Just that's around wow. then. Wow. Around then. Does that does that does that I check no out? Idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no idea. Right, okay. Okay. Yeah. Now the reason I start there, and that's quite interesting that you're surprised by that. That's how I first came across your work. Um, or things that you had done. And and everybody, and like I say, I think everybody will have their own story. Whoever's tuning in to have their own story. Some will be recent, some will even predate that. But what was quite interesting to me is that 
I went back to look at what was the first thing I probably read from Moose and I was trying to find articles, et cetera, et cetera, to be like, what was that first piece? And I think for me, what I don't know which piece exactly it was, but I think what would have resonated for me was, my own personal story was, here's an articulate black guy. Um, and I've got to speak the truth because that's what it would have been for me. Here's mm. an articulate black guy writing in the newspaper that I read of choice mm. um, at that time um, and espousing viewpoints that, okay, yes, I agree with, but irrespective of whether I agree with them or not, writing in a way to make me think about if I agree with them as opposed right, right. to just being like an echo chamber type thing. But when I went back to kind of try and find what was the opening piece, the actual predominant thought that came to my head was, but that's not the start of Musa's journey, surely. That's just the start of the journey for me <laughs> in terms mm. of how I came across you. And I realized that I don't know where your story starts for you. And yes, we're calling it the one with the author, but does it start there? Where does your story start vis-a-vis -vis even realizing that you might want to be a writer wow. of sorts? Um, and I hasten to add that, of course, you've you've released um, one of them, which is your the, the memoir of your of your time at Eton. So then I was like, is it from Eton? Does it, is that where it first started for you? But I don't know your story, and this is why I said yeah, to you, yeah. the story is important. So where does it actually? Okay, okay. You? Let let me give you. Okay, so there's maybe um I think there's been four distinct stages to my desire to write. Mm. First, ten years old, obsessed with words, always wanted to be a writer, writing poetry when I was young, always loved words, right? Um. So that's always a thing like anything i get my hands on like alfred hitchcock best known as a director but was also a writer he used to write these great stories uh the three investigators little murder mysteries he wrote for fun it's incredible stories so i used to read all of that all of that stuff anything get my hands on so 10 years old and it all started then there was my time at uni where i did a law degree um i'm actually a qualified lawyer so i did that i qualified as a lawyer because i wanted to have a fallback in case the writing didn't work out so i did a law degree knowing i wanted to be a writer one day uh, so I was writing through my time at uni. I was writing uh, poetry, but mostly fiction, trying to get stuff published while I was at uni, but it wasn't good enough. Hadn't found my voice yet. That when I was sort of 18, 19, 20. Second phase of my sort of desire to be a writer. Third phase came um, when I left my job as a lawyer in mm -hmm. 2005. Yeah. 2005, when I left my job, I qualified as a lawyer and then left to basically temp at the home office in Croydon. Um, so I was earning sort of eight fifty an hour, living in Grenaby Avenue, just off Sydenham Road in East Croydon for I think three years. I was just a performance poet. I started out as a poet, dabbled in music, did a bit of music for a while, spoken word over bass music, basically the kind of music that was popular like fifteen years earlier. But it was like spoken word and bass music had no scene by the time I was doing it, even in the dubstep scene. But I still did it because I loved it. Got a few gigs here and there, kept me moving. And then I, the end of my first sort of phase, sort of my third phase of being a writer, wanted to be a writer, was 2007, where I released a book of, a book about football called um, A Culture of the Foot. Um, and that was basically a theory of what makes a great footballer. Uh, three years later, I wrote one of them, or not one of them, sorry, uh, Will You Manage, which was uh, another book that was about what makes a great football manager. Um, and then I had a kind of gap of about 10 years and in between that gap is when you discovered my writing mm. and those 10 years were kind of a wilderness they felt like even though i was writing my own blog and getting commissioned here and there they felt like a wilderness because i felt like my stuff wasn't really getting momentum like i wrote mm. these two books they were reviewed well and to be honest with you 
I felt like I kind of drifted because I was producing this work, but there wasn't really a market for it or it felt like. So a lot of it was my own blog. I was getting commissioned here and there, not being paid much for it. So you found me at a point where, and that's like a rapid whip through, you found me at a point where, how do I say this? Let me be frank. The reason I've succeeded, the reason I've made it, the reason I've made it is because of my friends. And I say this because if you, you go as recently as a Callum Jacobs, who is a brilliant writer and editor, shout out to his book, A New Formation, coming out about the role that black footballs have played in the British football story. Yourself, an early adopter, an early listener to the Stadio podcast I co-host with the great Ryan Hun, or even I would take it to my 40th birthday party, my 40th birthday party two years ago, an amazing writer, an amazing human being called Jennifer Neal. Um, she's got a great novel coming out called Notes in Her Colour. It's coming out next year. It's going to blow everyone away. It's incredible. I've read it. Jennifer, a friend of mine in Berlin, organized a surprise birthday party for dozens of my, for me and dozens of my friends for my 40th. And I walk in this cafe, escorted by a fellow troll, Jonathan Harding, who like also was in on the, was in on the deception. I walk in this room and like all my closest friends in Berlin are there. Mm. And it was mind-blowing and heartbreaking. I gave a bit of a speech and I was basically, Jennifer said, you sounded quite despondent, but I wasn't. It was more like going, I haven't got what I want to get as a writer, but that doesn't matter because I have all these people in my life. And I look at the journey of writing and achieving your potential, and I don't know if I'll get there because I don't think I have. And frankly, I don't think I had at that point. Um, but I remember that day was the day I was like, <clears throat> that day I was like, no matter what happens in my career, I have these incredible friends and that is enough. That will be enough. And that was the turning point actually, because mm. if I look at, if I, it was the first time in my life I looked back and realized that friendship could be enough, mm. even if the artistic dream didn't work out. And at some level I relaxed and that made everything else possible. So yeah, it's friends that got me here. If that makes sense. Wow. Okay. So I need to unpick parts of that. They're the Thank you, first and foremost. Um, if we can just go back to why... Two questions, actually, first. Mm. Why law? Why Why did you do law? If you had a love for something else, why mm. did you do law? And then secondly, once you've answered that, when you look back at that early write-in that wasn't getting commissioned, mm. do you think it was trash? Mm. Or do you think that you hadn't worked out how the game works yet? Like, first was there all, validity yeah. in any of your writing? Let me answer the second question first. Mm. The reason the writing wasn't good enough is because it was full of fear. Right. I was afraid. It was technically accomplished. Yeah. Technically, the writing was there, but I was afraid. I was afraid to examine, explore themes. I was terrified of talking about Uganda, where my family grew up, and the, the civil war situation there. I was terrified of talking about how traumatic racism could be. I was terrified of talking about the rejection I'd experienced as someone who is openly bisexual, as a black man, you know, all that, whatever, society, hyper-masculinity, all the rest of it. I was scared of that. So I was I was skirting around. I was writing about it um, via analogy or via allegory. And because I was so afraid of confronting it, because I was afraid of the persecution that might come, I didn't go head on. And then at a certain point, I realized, actually, Musa, the hatred and the rejection of some people is actually a badge of honor. Yeah, I'm not going to go all out to be hated or to be rejected, but if certain people disapprove of what I'm saying, that's actually a badge of honor. The moment I realized I became indifferent to some level, when I was at my desk, I became braver, and that was the breakthrough. But back to why law, 
it's a similar it's a different side of the same coin i was afraid of rejection if i didn't do the right kind of degree i knew full well i'd seen all the stats about how if you submit a cv for a job application if you've got a foreign surname the chances of success drop dramatically i thought to myself if you get the best degree you can you get a law degree from the best university possible or let's say you don't get into oxford which i got into i was thinking there's 20 other unis easy if i do a law degree there it'll be respected i could do a law degree at durham newcastle warwick Mm. um you know southampton like in all these places where if i do a degree a law degree there it's respected so i thought a law degree is the most secure way of ensuring your future against risk because people look at that in your cv and they'll give you a second look which yeah. they wouldn't necessarily do with you know like once you don't go to a certain uni for a certain subject after like like the most visible let's say 30 or 40 unis it's a um especially the further you travel from England, mm. those degrees are of variable quality and currency. I can say for a fact that there's there's flats I wouldn't have been renting if the landlord in most cases or the landlady in some cases had not seen a law degree on my CV and the mm. university I went to. So that was almost going to be my calling card. And I knew that from a very early age, which is why I denied myself the joy of studying English A-level. So I was third best in my year out of 260 boys, I think 250 boys, I was third best in my year. I didn't do English A-level. And my tutors were shocked. They're like, why not? And I was like, I don't want to like attempt myself with an English degree at university. Hmm. And even at uni, my mates, like, we were sitting talking one day and they're like, hang on a minute, why the hell are you doing law and not English when that's obviously your passion, your interest? And I was like, you don't get it. Like, I'm, I'm going to go out in the world as a black guy and the law degree is going to be a better piece of, social currency than, than the english degree i hear that so um, that's the reality man that's the that's the yeah so then that that i understand and that that explains that for me so then let me fast forward to i think you said 2009 do you say 2009 2008 when you write um a culture left foot yeah to, 07 i wrote it came out in 08 yeah 2000 right, oh, yeah, so yeah, let's yeah. Say 08. yeah 08 that, yeah <clears throat> that's quite interesting as well because Again, we, we spoke about final form, mm. but irrespective of looking at it as an author, let's also look at it from the fact you're a very successful co-host on a successful podcast, Stadio, part of Ringer FC, etc. And for those of you who are listening to this who don't know that, I strongly recommend you go and find it straight after you've listened to this episode. Oh, but thanks, man. Musa, you've referenced on many a time, uh, both on that podcast and on, on, on other mediums, that you thought there was no place for you to talk about football. But what, what I didn't know was that your first football foray was 2008. Mm. Now, the reason I bring this up in your journey then is, did you know you wanted to be an, what was it? Was it, I want to be an author. Did you know what you wanted to write about? I guess is where I'm going with this. Such a was great it, question. Yeah. 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 Go on. Um, just take it. Take that where you want to take No, it. great question. So I, I thought I'd, I, so um, I had, I'd, been a i've been writing poetry and prose together like as a teen a lot and my first kind of successes or whatever or advances came in in fiction actually so i was winning like writing awards like mid-teens and that's where i thought i could really make it so i wrote this i wrote a short story called crime pays which won the w the w86 sorry it won the w8 smith uh young writers award in 1996 a short story I wrote called crime pays years and yeah obviously years back now and that's when i thought you know i could be a 
a novelist because a lot of people that won that went on to be novelists uh, mm. with the exception of the great Kate Beckinsale went on to be a brilliant actress. So like, I was like, okay, I've got a chance to like, you know, go and do something with this. So I was writing fiction for ages and then I get approached by an agent um, who really helped me, Heather Holden Brown, my first literary agent. And Heather basically was like, approached me with the proposal to write a book about David Cameron, mm. doing a biography of David Cameron early years. Like she goes, as someone that went to Eton that knows that world, could you do that? And I was like, actually, I would rather not because a story like that, a book like that makes me a kind of like outcast. I can't do investigative work. That's not my, that will, yeah, that pays well, but that's basically like, I'm not emotionally ready to write a book like that. Yeah, you you, well, you might have been finished if you'd written. <laughs> yeah, I would have been, I would have been, they would have, cooked, I mean, they cooked me, they cooked me. But what I wanted to do, I wanted to write a book about football. And she said, okay, well, how about a proposal? So I put together the first couple of chapters and we signed this book deal in 2007. I'll never forget, I spoke to my friend Sarah, Sarah Maslin Near, who's an amazing writer for the New York Times. And I was like, oh my goodness, I, I got this book deal. And she goes, why do you sound so despondent? You sound really unhappy. It's your first ever book deal. They wanted, so the, the proposal got rejected by, I think, 12 publishers out of 13. One publisher took it. The guy who took it didn't even like football. He just liked the way it was written. So they're called Duckworth. Duckworth basically publish classics. They publish like Charles Dickens and Iris Murdoch. I think yeah. I think Iris Murdoch and I, was, but they basically don't publish like football. The guy was just like, I like the way it's written. He signed it and then he retired two months later. Total, <laughs> yeah, total chance. So he loves the book. And the reason I was so despondent when I got the book deal wasn't because I wasn't happy to get a deal. It's because they wanted the next 70,000 words in three months. So I had to write 67,000 words in three months. I did it. I delivered it a day before the deadline. Um, Caroline MacArthur, shout out to her, amazing editor, edits the book. And it gets nominated for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year. Mm. And the, the reason why I mention this is not to like name drop or, or, or boost myself. It's because that was... It was a huge advance, but it was a setback in a sense that if that book had gone to the short list and not the long list, it's different. It's like you get interviewed on Radio 5 Live, it's yeah. National Press, it's that. And it was like, and the book also was like, it was going to get optioned for TV. They're like, we want you to like present this. So Christian Brody at Agile Films at the time, Christian got in touch and he was like, um, we want to like turn this into like a, a six part series that you narrate for TV and you go and explore it but they couldn't afford the footage. They mm. couldn't afford the TV footage and the clips. Now, these days, they might just animate them, for example. But back then, it's a budget thing. They couldn't do it. So in 2008 was my first brush with the mainstream success. And as quickly as it was there, it was gone again. And I don't know if you remember Simon Barnes, the great Simon Barnes at the yep. time. Yep. He wrote a column that Christmas saying, this is the sports book of the year. Why wasn't it even shortlisted? He wrote like a like a 400-word column in the Times and I was like, oh my God, my Simon, what? Oh my God. He was like, yeah, like, I believe in it. You deserve it. So there were always people even then going, why is this guy not further ahead? But then I kind of slipped back into obscurity again because I kind of, this, the commissions I hoped would come from that book didn't really come. I kept on working at an NGO and it never really took off MASH. So I had a kind of like a taste of it and then I kind of submerged again. You, you, you briefly... I think have just answered what I want to ask, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to go a bit deeper. Yeah, sure. Why did it not come though? Now that I feel like the answer you've given me is mm. what you felt at that time, but with the hindsight now looking no, back, no one, because no one surely yeah. at that time it, it's human nature. Surely at that time you're like, I've made it. I'm recognized. 
let me let me get the next book, whatever, whatever, or the next book and the yeah. next book. Looking back now, what and it may not have been you, maybe it was just circumstance, but what possible missteps did you Oh make? yeah, I made I made missteps as well. So I Yeah, talk me through that. If I could have done differently, maybe I would have gone harder after writing. So I did a range of things. I was doing music as well at the time, and I was really enjoying the music, to be honest. And we got some decent bookings, decent gigs, um, got some good, you know, got some good radio play here and there, BBC Six mostly, but we were getting out there. Uh, but to be honest with you, I I tried pushing stuff, but I just wasn't getting commissioned for things. I wrote a blog, for example, for The Independent for a year, and I never got paid for it. And I had a meeting then with the editor at the time. I won't name names because I don't want to badmouth people, but they know who they are. But I met an individual there and I was like, oh, that maybe I could be like commissioned for this. And I knew for a fact they were handing out contracts there. Yeah. And I knew they were giving like quite big contracts. And I know they've got star writers, not going to be arrogant. I knew people had a bigger profile than me. But I remember thinking, surely it must be worth some level of investment. And they never invested a penny in me. And this this editor in particular said, you are our best blogger. They told me that. Like, I was like, hang on a minute, but if I'm being read more widely than some of the bloggers that you pay, shouldn't I get some measure of investment? Sat me down, you know, basically blew smoke up my backside for a bit and then left without any offer of anything. And that was really dispiriting. Um, and I was getting commissioned now and again for the odd essay here and there, but I remember thinking, I do think I've got a good enough body of work, even now in 2008, 2009, to start getting paid for stuff here and there. And it wasn't happening. And I was writing for The Independent on a range of subjects, writing about absolutely everything, writing about Civil War stuff, some Middle East stuff, some stuff in Uganda by analogy with the stuff that was happening in Syria at the time, you know, stuff that was written with a view to a broader context. When I was talking something like Syria, I talk about interventions, what had been successful, what hadn't been successful, all that. So really like going deep on everything, on race, on football, on music, on sexuality, and nothing was really picking up. It was all very... And some might say that's a life of a life of a freelancer, but I was like, I felt like I was, I felt like I was better than I was getting the work for. So I started my own blog in the end out of frustration. Mm. I thought if I'm not going to get published there, at least I can publish myself. Yeah. And at one point I was writing five, six blogs on a now defunct website, aquanga.com. Um, a now defunct website. I was writing up to six blogs. Um, a week at one point just about stuff i was reading seeing politically that i knew about that i had a knowledge for a chance mm. to show my range and one thing i noticed actually mash was i started off with very few twitter uh, readers as we all do and um, it was weird because i was read by people with much bigger readership people like who the hell is this guy like yeah. he's got like two thousand followers and then there's people like 50 60 who read him what they didn't know was i'd been published by the blizzard Shout out ah. to Philippe Claire and Jonathan Wilson. So I was mm. published in issue zero of the Blizzard talking about, um, I think it was about Chavi and the Square Pass mm. and about how Chavi's Square Pass was like this revolutionary thing in football because of his control of tempo. So I was respected by writers. And this was a theme of my career. I was respected by, let's say in the poetry scene, I was respected by fellow poets, all of whom were like far better known than me. So like Scroobus Pip, K Tempest, they were like well known. And I, it was always like there'd be like a podcast of like three people and this extra guy oh who's that dude i'd be on stage with like oh who's that dude or i'd be like in a room of football writers would be like oh yeah we know who they are but who's that dude and i was always like who's that dude for like yeah. years so but that and again but to that to that to the point 
those people kept me going. Even when I was trying stuff out, like you talk about missteps. I mean, I would do stuff like, there's one video that I recorded of a poetry. It was basically me going through London, a poem called Heavyweight. We went through London and it was basically like a um, shot on like a fisheye lens, 3D, 360. Me and Richard Knuckles shot that ages ago. And Richard said, do you realize how many pictures come in year after year going, we want a video just like that? When we shot it, sank without a trace. Yeah. Or I did an anti-homophobia campaign for an advertising agency along with the FA. Uh, the uh, campaign got pulled at the last minute, but they screened it anyway. Um, they basically, the FA pulled it because it's too controversial. The news, news night screened it. I then heard that that one, that ad campaign won awards for people who got promoted and paid a lot of money off it, but I got none of the money because I'd left the, I'd, I was commissioned as a consultant. So by then the project was out of my hands. So this kept, this kept happening where I would do work and years after I'd done it, it gets picked up. Mm. So it was almost like, and this is not to sound like I was ahead of my time. What I'm saying is stuff that I did that I tried and didn't really take off for like two or three, four years, five years, six years in some cases, I would get despondent and then move on to the next thing. Mm. What's happened now is at the age of 40, 38, 39, 40, about four or five years ago, people started finding all the old stuff ah. as well as my new stuff. And then it all caught up. So now it's like people have caught up with everything. And I, for the first, I tell Ryan this all the time, Ryan, amazing co-host of Stadio Football Podcast. I was too late with my music by 15 years. I was too early by 15 years with the type of football writing I was doing. Mm. Very shareable, short, concise, perfect for Instagram, all that stuff. Like if, if a culture that comes out now, it's a different, it's a different right, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was too early for that. But for the first time in my life with my podcast and my books, I've been right on time. Interesting fascinating fascinating almost and i guess the first things first actually a very artsy the the now defunct website so what <laughs> where's, all the, <laughs> where's all the pieces that are on that website there, i've got them you, stored, can, got you, data. you can make coin out of this stuff where is it i can <laughs> i can upload them i've got them uh shout out to my friend joshua aaron joshua aaron basically like helped me archive everything okay and i know it sounds bad but i was so broke at one point i just couldn't maintain it Mm, it was it was, it was it was unnecessary expenditure it's like a hundred quid a hundred quid a year which is not it's not a wild no, amount no, of money understand. but i just i'd moved to germany i changed all those different things and i was just like oh, it's a hundred quid a month like who's even a hundred quid a year i was like who is even reading this thing I, again i got despondent i didn't i'm not going to pretend this was a story of like my sheer will overcoming everything it was really a question of trying stuff and going oh no one likes it and then moving on mm. but actually it turns out people did like it because if I talk to people, I talk to someone like Callum, for example, or like Iman Amrani, who's been amazing and supportive of stuff. Iman's like, yeah, I was reading your stuff through uni. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Like, cause you, you never, you don't hear from people, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> but, but thinking about that, actually, you, it, it is no, it is no kind of, uh, a glib reference to say you were possibly 10, 15 years too early because you do that now. It's just natural to monetize. Like mm. whether it be on Medium, whether it be on Patreon, or do do, do you see what I mean? Whereas yes, I'm presuming the era at which you wrote this, that hadn't those kind of self monetization aspects of blogging hadn't really taken off. Um, no, Substack, none of that, that, none of that. Substack, even even Patreon. Like the thing is, 
even now, I'd be afraid to test my financial value on the market. I don't think I would do a Patreon or Substack because I want people to read my work as much as possible for free. Mm. I love that people can read my work for free. I mean, I put stuff on Instagram the whole time. People are like, oh, that should have been an article. I said, no. Yeah, I know. I said, but we have different, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but <laughs> I was like, I have a different agenda. I want it to travel. And if it's traveling on Instagram and stories, mm. that's more valuable because otherwise it's like a download link. The thing, the reason I love Instagram is because you can write, you can write an article on 10 Instagram slides that mm. reaches a huge number of people. Black Lives Matter was like that. I would yeah. write poems, for example. I'd write poems and short bits of text, and I wouldn't watermark them. So I wrote a poem about about Winnie Mandela when she died, and someone said, "Musa, people don't know you've written this. This is going through the aunties on South African WhatsApp at the moment, and they're like, <laughs> who wrote it?'" And I said, "I'm glad they don't know. I'm glad they don't know because all they have is words without context, and that helps them to grieve or process grief. It's much better. It's not. And then when they found out, they're like, "Oh, it's not even a South African dude. It's a Ugandan dude. Like it's a British Ugandan dude." <laughs> <laughs> and I was proud. I was proud that it came back to me eventually. Mm. The people, and I was no, I wasn't. I was proud of the fact that people were like, "My God, you're not South African, and you get it." I was yeah. proud of that, but I wasn't. So a lot of the stuff I put out there that might be like, "Oh, I don't monetize that." I'm like, actually, some of the stuff is put out there. What is the most effective way of connecting to people? It's not always surprise, surprise. It happens that it's not through capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> so, so <laughs> I hear these stories of almost despondency move on despondency move on yes but and i know i know you said you don't want it to come across like just sheer strength of will but there's only so much despondency a person can take before mm. they yes. give up on the <laughs> before they give up on the dream yes so how close were you really oh my god to and yeah, again, with these things, I want you to just actually answer them however you feel. How close were you to saying this just isn't meant to be? There must have been a point you got to where, where friends or no friends, you were like, yeah. this is it now. Like, it's, it's just not going to happen. Ask Ryan. Ask Ryan. So he will tell you I was months from quitting football writing before I had coffee with him. He just got in touch by chance. He heard me on the um, on the great Arsenal uh, podcast with Andrew Mag and the Ask cast. He was like, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, Moose is in Berlin. I've got an idea for a podcast project. So he got in touch with me and we went for, went for a coffee and we talked for like three and a half hours, just about everything. And at the end he was like, yeah, I think we could make a, make a go of this. But a few months before that, I was thinking of quitting it. And Ryan was like, what the hell are you doing? And another guy did that around the same time, Lee Davis, who's down in Leipzig now. Um, another great friend of mine, Lee read, um, will you manage? Lee, Lee was, Lee was ill. And he sat in bed reading Will You Manage? And that was a book that got criticized at the time because they were like, who is this like, you know, posh, private school, old Etonian writing about football like it's a pastime. And it was like, I got savaged in like quite a big football magazine. I won't name them, but they they know who they are. They went for me in a really painful way. Really, the first paragraph was so personal, so painful, so class related. Like they wrote all these things. And the most painful thing about the review that review could have really have helped me if they'd liked the book. They hated mm. it. And they went in on my my background, my personality. This guy is such a snob. You know, the really painful, that, the painful thing about that book, and you'll relate to this as a, as a fan of non-league football, the painful thing about this book was, my whole point was, everyone's talking about great managers. And I said, can you really be a great manager if you have infinite resources? Can it be proven? Mm. We know Pep's great, but we know he's great because he worked with constraints at some level. 
yeah. at Barca, he did not have infinite he did not have infinite uh, income, infinite resources. So my theory with this book was, and this comes back to how close I was to quitting. I wrote this book thinking this book was quite a progressive book in the sense that it interviewed primarily lower league and non-league managers. So I interviewed Mick Harford uh, yeah. when Luton uh, played Grimsby and beat them 2-1 and Mike Newell's in the bench, which a lot of uh, Grimsby and Luton fans will remember that game, 2-1. Top, bottom two teams in the league. I interviewed yeah. Graham Turner over at Hereford and he couldn't mm -hmm. believe it. I turn up in Hereford and he's like, why are you interviewing me? And I said, because you resurrected Wolves. I said, you remember that story you're telling, like 3,000, 4,000 fans. There were rats in the kind of the car park. He was like, you were training in the car park. He was like, oh my God, he'd forgotten that. Yeah. And I said, look what you're doing with Hereford. That's like, that's amazing. So people like Graham Turner, I was going and meeting like, you know, George Borg, who was at Aldershot, who was like, George Borg. Yeah. <laughs> interviewed, <laughs> I interviewed George Borg. Right, right. You know, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's why I'm laughing. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the like non-league. These are like lower league, non-league legends, right? Legends, right? like legendary figures, certainly. Mm. So to write a book like that, where I felt like I just really wanted to talk about the beauty of the manager without resources who still perseveres and to get absolutely savaged by this major football publication I'd grown up reading was devastating. So after so many of those knockbacks, I'm like, oh, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna make it because even some of the reviews I was getting, the work I was getting, it was all like race and football. I was looking at some of the pieces yeah. like, hang on a minute. Musa, race and football. The, uh, my first two books are about greatness. Mm. Greatness. They barely mentioned race, and I'm still only getting commissioned. I'm thinking, hang on a minute. You're commissioning other writers to talk about the fun stuff in football, the non-controversial stuff. And with the exception of the blizzard and a couple of other places, it was just race and football. And that's why I will always respect and thank Philippe O'Claire primarily and Jonathan Wilson as well, just in terms of like, they gave me that broom to be my full self as a football writer. And then, you know, when I met Ryan years later, it was someone that gave me my place to be my full self as a football writer. And I'll always be grateful for that. You, you've done a perfect segue for me by mentioning race and football. So mm. I said to you earlier on that mm. I would have first come across you in The Guardian. Mm. And it's quite interesting because... By the later years of pieces you were writing in The Guardian, and I say this with full respect, Musa, mm. by the later years of pieces you were writing in The Guardian, I kind of felt that they were often about race. And mm. that's not that's not a criticism because no, no, no. they were it's good, true. but they were about race. <laughs> they were they're about race. And I'm, it got to a point where it's like, Musa can write about race and he can write really well about race, but is is he just the race guy? <laughs> if yeah. you if you see yeah. where I'm coming from, it's why and, I left. The, um, that's why I left the country. It's why I left the country. And I look, and it's interesting that story you just said about the football magazine hmm. going in on your identity, but in this yeah. sense, class identity. Yeah. So I guess I've got to kind of draw two different things together here because initially in my notes before this episode, I was going to say to you. And I guess I still am. How much was Eton a help or a hindrance? And then in my notes, if you could see my notes, I'm going to take a picture of them and send it to you. In my mm. notes, I've got race or class. That's literally what it says on my notes. Wow, wow, wow. So it's interesting yeah. that you just told this story. And I'm looking down at my notes going, ah, interesting. Because with the Eton thing, I think people will assume that it's more of a race thing. And obviously you've written the, the book, a second plug for those who haven't read it, one of them. Mm. But I was just thinking, no, because there's going to be a dual issue here for Musa. Yeah. Um, so 
I, you may say you've already answered it, but I do just want to kind of unpick generally, if you can. Yeah. No, I love that you mentioned more of a help or a hindrance. So, okay. So, um, and this, first of all, let me say, I don't want to sound like I have a sob story because I went to Eton, I went to Oxford, I went to these institutions, elite institutions, great education. If I'd wanted to go and just make a lot of money, it wouldn't have been easy, but it would have been an easier path in terms of more natural path, in terms of more straightforward path. So I want to also preface everything I say I want to preface everything I say by saying this creative path is the path that I chose. And yes, it's been a struggle um, for reasons that are like, there's personal reasons why the path was not easy. Um, I don't want to disrespect anyone in my, my background, my family background, but I will suffice to say that um, for a very, very long time, I was traveling under my own steam in this creative dream. Like I lost my dad very early. Um, I come from a big family, but things were things. There were things. No, let me be frank. Like being openly bisexual made things very difficult mm -hmm. on a personal level, and it meant that I was traveling under my own steam for a very, very long time, for most of my adult life. So it was not a conventional. Ah, oh, he's just like a rich kid. I was, you know, I got a bursary, got like a half scholarship to school. So it's like not like I was a rich kid trying out this artistic thing for fun. The reason it was a hindrance was you had people. It was um it was a double whammy in some ways and it sounds a bit dramatic but what you'd have was you'd have people like dear people who are dear friends now who didn't trust me initially because they couldn't believe that someone who'd been to the school that i went to would have progressive political views so there was a period of isolation and standoffishness from some people where they couldn't believe that i was who i said i was i got that i understood that because most people they would have met from a background like mine would have rejected them and had views that they found reprehensible, toxic, or the rest of it. So I, you kind of have to just take it and keep it moving. It was personally very painful to feel that isolation, but it was there, whether I liked it or not. There would others, there'd be other stories with like my accents. So I've never really toned down my accent. This is how I've spoken since I was 13 years old, my private school, whatever. I don't ever, I don't ever hide that. I never like had any kind of inflections, never dropped my T's, nothing, dropped my vowels. I was always real. None, none of that. Cause I'm like, I went to that school. I'm not going to like deny it. Yeah. Always back yourself. Not because, just not to be ashamed in who you are, right? And um, the thing about that was that it came in, in music, actually, where I'd be recording vocals, and it would often come up where it'd be like, get that vocalist off. We love the lyrics, but not the voice. That accent doesn't fit with what he's saying. And it would happen time and again. You'd have people, yeah. you'd go into studios, we love the lyrics, you wouldn't be signed for stuff. So the, the first record deal I got in my life was in Germany, actually. Really great underground label. Um, shout out to Clouds Hill. Like, they gave me a, a deal for a couple of years. They, they were people that believed, but people would hear that and they'd shut down because people had such bad experiences with people from my world. And because Eton is a closed world and people don't really meet old Etonians or they don't admit to it, people might hide their accents or hide where they went to school. I became this kind of lightning rod for resentment for a lot of people. That would happen on social media. Um, you'd get a lot of hate directed at old Etonians would come to me. And it happened for a long time, actually for years actually it was very painful and but i would never complain openly because i knew it was coming from so i couldn't be like oh my god i'm one of the nice guys because i was like actually if someone's had a bad experience with 20 men and you're the 20th 21st that comes along and you go not all men you're perpetuating yeah, the problem yeah, yeah. you need to go out there yeah. in the world and prove yeah. that you're not all men so what i've noticed was on twitter for example is anecdotally people re-following me who I muted years ago, who were like, actually, that guy's legit. And a few years ago, I can mention this to you now, I won't name names, but quite pro two quite prominent people on Twitter were having a conversation about old Etonians and slating them. 
And then one of them said, oh, but that guy's not like that. He goes, no, no, he's legit. Like he's always been on it. He's always been on it. Da, da, da. And the guy, one of them was like, oh, we, we didn't deserve him. And that's why he left. That's why he went to Germany. And they tagged me in it almost like I was meant to see it, but I yeah. didn't reply because I'm like, you know, just let that go. Yeah, and it was yeah, like, yeah. wow. I was like, years ago, you kind of, you kind of, one of you at least kind of like, if not hated me, had an intense dislike for me and a distrust. Not not a dislike, call it a mistrust. Call it a mistrust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An intense yeah. mistrust. So the class thing was a problem because then you came into football and people were like, who is this posh guy writing? Who is this posh bastard writing poetry about football? And it became very easy to dismiss me. And so for years, I would get dismissed. I would get a lot of hate. Then over a while, after a while, it was like, hang on, this guy's actually, it's actually quite good. Mm. Like, I'm not going to name names again, but there are specific people who were like, I saw them talking about this guy's just not all that, is he? Like, it's kind of crap. And like, yeah, now those people are like, they came to me through respect for my work. And I'm not going to name them because it's not fair on them. But like eight years ago, I can clearly, like eight years ago, that guy in particular was like, I can't stand what this guy's doing. And I haven't changed anything. He just come round. So the class thing, you had to earn people's trust. And the yeah. race thing was like, people didn't know what to do with you because you're this like, you're this black guy who went to Eton. You should be a Tory. So they're trying to put in that political box on mm. the football stuff, on the political stuff. And you end up not getting commissioned because it's kind of disappointing for people because you're not what they want. Yeah. So this would happen time and time again. So was it race or was it class? I mean, I think it was a mixture of both, but I couldn't really talk about the class stuff because I benefited so much. I've had so much privilege and part of, part of privilege is actually taking it on the chin, taking the yeah. blows, yeah. taking the criticism and allowing people, do you know what it's like? Mm. if someone's traumatized by something people that you've done that your class people have done you've got to sit there and take the rage because the rage is the test yeah i sat here and took a lot of that for a while and what happens is if you allow people to have that rage at you they stop and they go you know what you're still here because you care there's a lyric by dave it ain't about who came around it's more about who stayed around and it's one mm -hmm. thing coming around and the moment you get called out being old Etonian or someone from class background, if you run off immediately, you never really cared. But if you stay there and go, yeah, no, fair point. That's why I don't do, that's why I wasn't doing interviews about Brexit and about inequality because I'm like, you know what, the last person I need to hear from right now is a privileged black guy telling them that their vote yeah. was the wrong yeah. vote. If the RMT vote for Brexit because they believe it's better for workers, they don't need me going from Berlin oh, by the way, it's all wrong. They need to talk to other working class people about whether it's right or wrong and what works for them, what works for working class people. I grew up in West Drayton around working class people. That's not my struggle in terms of class. They have challenges I never will. So as far as I can um, just uh, enable or help to amplify things that are being said, then, then, then that's great. So there's been a lot of discipline in terms of like, how do I say this? I've had to be passive when it comes to class and proactive when it comes to race in terms of pleading my case, if that makes sense. I love that answer. Would you say then, because again, trying to link it to what you'd said before this answer, mm. all of that then almost then becomes, so both the the race and the class, the the football writing, the lack of commission, all of that becomes a perfect storm then before you move to Germany. Yes, yes, yes. I was noticing you, I was getting. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, you. No, please, please answer. Please. I was going to say, was there a? Again, a lot of this is me asking you to look back, but was there?
that do you remember the final point if there ever is such a thing in these scenarios there was where you said that's it i i, I have to go now like because you wouldn't move <laughs> move into germany and of course berlin which you have written about mm. <laughs> as well it's not easy no. it's, i'm not no. i'm not saying that it's hard per se but and i'm i'm, I'm sure there are other okay so for example Mm. Maybe going to Amsterdam might be slightly easier. I, I don't was, know. I'm, just picking, I'm plucking something out of the sky. There, there was but... one specific moment when I was like, I need to go. Right. Okay. Talk, it was talk me So uh, Ryan's going to, if Ryan ever hears this, he'll roll his eyes because I always we joke about <laughs> it's become a meme like going to Brazil, the meme of like, <laughs> I always took my trip to Brazil, but it, it was in Brazil. There was a turning point. So go to Brazil for the World Cup um, in 2014. And this was a quite fortuitous thing, all of it, the way it happened, very serendipitous. So I'm on the way to make a documentary with the great Jim Frank, producer at BBC, a uh, radio producer about the World Cup. I'm going to host it. It's called The Burden of Beauty. I'm doing it for radio, uh, BBC Radio 4, uh, World Service, sorry. It was a two-part documentary, which I love doing. On the way to Brazil, normally I just put my, on a, on a long-haul flight, I normally just put my headphones on, watch a movie or just fall asleep. But on that one occasion, for the first time ever, I thought, let me just talk to my neighbours, you know, just make some small talk. Don't normally do that because on long flights, you know, you just want to like pass out and get the thing done. I got talking to um, Carlos Murdoch and his wife, Luciana Sodre, who are like um, the architects of an architect's firm in Rio. Mm. We get talking and we, we get on so well on this flight. By the time we land, we're friends. So we're so friendly that like, I end up interviewing them for a documentary. They're the first interview, the BBC World Search documentary, having just met them on the plane about the social context, the social political context in Rio. Carlos and Luciana become such good friends. I end up staying with, they're like, come back to the World Cup come back for the World Cup two months later. So I booked my flight back and ended up staying with them for half of my time in Rio. And Carlos actually ends up running for mayor of Rio and gets like 5,000 votes on a progressive platform. Amazing guy. So anyway, <laughs> I'm have dinner with Carlos, Luciano and their family. And they're like, what are you still doing in the UK? You've got an international outlook. Why are you still in the UK? And I was like, oh, but the UK is international. They're like, no, it's not. London's international. The UK is not. What are you still doing there? You should move. And I'd been thinking about going to Amsterdam or Stockholm. And they said, how about Berlin? And I was like, oh my God, Amsterdam. I love Amsterdam, but it was a bit too small. Yeah, I love Stockholm, right size. Didn't have Swedish, didn't have as much of an art scene. So Amsterdam had the art scene. Stockholm had the size, but not the art scene. And I was like, oh, Berlin's perfect. It's got everything. It's got the size and I speak German because I'd done German for my A-level. Right. 20 years ago, I'd done German for my A-level because my thinking had been, one day you might live in the heart of Europe. You might live in the heart of Europe one day and French and German are the two languages that will take you the furthest in that respect. So I, I studied these and kind of just banked these languages. Yeah. And then I just went for it. It was wild. It was such a kind of um, a gamble, a long-term gamble. So I moved to Berlin within six weeks. I was gone. And and the turning point for me wasn't just that conversation. It was, it was, well, it was, it was that conversation primarily. That was the one night where I was like, I'm going to do it. But the thing that happened, I think over a couple of weeks before was me reading the headlines from the UK and just seeing all this anti-immigration sentiment. And I said to my mom, I said, mom, they hate us. The way they talk about us immigrants, they hate us. They hate us so much. I said, I can't live my entire life in a country that hates us like this. I've got to try something else for a bit. Mm. So I said, you know what, like, I know there's family stuff to support and like, but is it okay if I just go to Germany? Because, you know, with, when you're an elder in a family, it's kind of that responsibility to kind of, you yeah, know, yeah. 
stay and like provide emotionally or financially. And I was like, she's like, Musa, go, go do it. Stage of 34, I went and that was it. And in essence, it, again, sounds so simplistic to say, but the, the stars start to align once you... <laughs> they once do, you they leave, did. <laughs> once you leave the country. They but did, everything was, transformed, yeah, yeah. Was there a specific... Re okay, hmm. Uh, you mentioned this earlier, but I don't know if you mentioned it in relation to Germany. Did Germany allow you to be mentally free? Now, I, I don't know. I'm saying that. You haven't said that, but... Yeah. Yes, did it, it did. did it, yes, it did. Was that the catalyst to free you up and, again, like we yes. said, be your true self? Yes, it was like race commentary, race commentary, and I just thought, I'm getting out. I'm getting out of here. Mm. I said to my mum, I'm going to become the race the race commentator. There was a thing. I saw Dark as How, Rest His Soul, Darkest Howe was on TV one time on the BBC talking about race and he looked so tired, like his skin looked grey. Yeah. And he was just like, we're here again. And I remember thinking, they've got him right where they want them. Mm. And I'm no disrespect to Darkest Howe, the greatest respect, because without him, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing now. It was more that like this man, they squeezed every juice out of that lemon. Mm. God bless that man. And I remember thinking, I can't be that. I'm going to be a 55-year-old black man on the BBC talking about race and I won't achieve my potential. I've got to go. My mum was like, you need to go. And I got it. And like, I'm just always been commissioned, talk about race, talk about race. And I saw other people getting commissioned to talk about stuff that I felt like I was also qualified to talk about. And I wasn't in the conversation for those. So I just bounced. I went. And so obviously left the country. And my mum said, like, the one thing is she said, you're leaving behind all your friends, all your contacts. And I laughed. And I said, that's exactly why I'm doing it. <laughs> And, you know, it's so funny with what happened because he put out this book. Shout out to Nikesh Shukla. He wrote a great book of essays. He edited a great book of essays called The Good Immigrant. Yeah. Yep, yep, ahead, I have yep. the final essay in that called The Ungrateful Country, where I yep. say Britain's ungrateful for what immigrants give it. It's ungrateful for people like me and for other immigrants, for all of us, all classes, all backgrounds. It's ungrateful. It gets a better deal than it realizes. And it uses us and spits us out. And they always say, if you don't like it, then leave. I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to leave. <laughs> and I left and I stayed left. I stayed gone and it's funny because we had the book tour for that and I couldn't do any of the book tours because I was out of the country I was gone and I was like I'm not coming back for them because that in itself is a statement not to come back yeah. and it was funny because the week that I left you're not going to believe this but I'll just tell the story anyway I got two of the biggest media commissions that I'd ever received one was BBC Newsnight and one was a BBC Channel 4 thing uh to film a TV show and both were on race commentary and I said no to both and my mum was like Oh, but Musa, like that's the platform. I said, no. I said, I'm not going to be on Newsnight for that. I'm not going to be on Newsnight for that. And I said, I walked from it. And that was felt like a power move because it was like, how can you say no to Newsnight? Because my work was building, my profile was building. I said, like, I'm gone. I'm out. And I went to Berlin with very simple dreams. You talk about freedom. The last question I'll answer, the last sort of point I make on the freedom side. I go to Berlin and I, I had a name as a performance poet, not a huge name, but like I was respected in the circles, whatever. I did not do a spoken word gig in Berlin for my first six months. I would turn up at events and just like sit there, chat and then leave. Not like being antisocial, but not being too desperate to make friends, getting in, easing myself into life in Berlin, getting commissioned here or there. And to be honest, part of me was a bit like, again, despondent, keep a low profile, do your thing and just find yourself again. And I wrote an essay and the essay, it was about, um, there, were, there, was, there were some sexual assaults in Cologne over, over the new year. I think it was the New Statesman I wrote it for. I wrote a piece for the New Statesman and the piece was shared widely, got translated into Italian, translated into Farsi, I think six different languages in total. 
And the piece was about feminism from a kind of black person's lens, black man's lens in Berlin, and what form feminism could take from a male perspective and what men could do. And the thesis of the article is basically like, the far right are going to go, oh my God, oh my God, look, it's these men of color who sexually assaulted these white women. And my argument was, here's the thing, it doesn't matter what the far right is saying, our priority is, are the women okay? Let's deal with the women and how they feel and do they feel safe in these places of celebration and worship? And we'll deal with the race aspect later. But our priority should always be the women, regardless of who the perpetrators are. That was my take on it. And that piece gets shared. It goes viral. It's one of the biggest pieces I've written to date. And I spoke to my friend Steffi, who's an amazing publisher, who runs a, a great book festival, Steffi Hisbrunner, an amazing woman. And Steffi, I said, Steffi, I, I came to Berlin to kind of go under the radar and be invisible. And she said, Musa, some people aren't meant to be invisible. And that was the beginning of the rest of my career. And I think ever since that day, I was like, that was a turning point of Musa, do you know what? Like, you're not going to be invisible. So you may as well embrace it. And that's what liberated me. So, and I love that again, Musa. Thank you. I, I'm going to try and bring this to, to some kind of natural close. Yeah, yeah, one, yeah, of the, sure. one, of the, one of the ways to do that yes. is to looking at like the last three. So you've had in the end, it was all about love. Mm. Um, one of them. Yes. Striking out um with uh in uh in conjunction with Ian Wright. Yes. Uh, the children's story. Just picking out some of the most recent things. Um yeah. in the last in the last two weeks you became a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Let, 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 let me give you a big up. I can't I can't <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm picking some stuff from the last let's say two years. Yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah. What I'm intrigued about, though, and we'll, we'll end with the the fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Yes, yes. Let's take one of them, for example, or if yes. you want to, in the end, it was all about love. How long were those in the draft? Do you know what? As it's so funny. And ideas. Because you know me. You see me on Twitter, tweet stuff, and then yes. write stuff within, like, a couple of hours of, like, tweeting it. Mm. Things percolate. Same with yeah. yourself. This podcast has percolated for a year, but now it's up and running. The actual process, once it's up and running, it's actually quite fast. Now you're going to like, because the book itself, I mean, like, um, in the end, it's all about love took, I would say, a year to maybe less than a year to write. One of them certainly took a few months to write. But in a sense, I've been right. So the actual writing time was a few months for both. But in a sense, I've been writing them for 30 years. Exactly. That's what... <laughs> you know what I mean? So actually, like, when my stuff, oh my God, you barely edited it. Well, yes and no. I could sit here and go, oh my God, I'm a genius. I wrote it in a few months. No, I was carrying it around, stored on my hard drive mentally for years, and I just downloaded it. Yeah. And that's how I like to write. I walk around with a story in my head for ages and just don't download it for ages. So when I write it, it's like, oh my goodness, there's no editing. Well, yeah, but the editing happened before I wrote anything down. If you'd seen how big it was before I wrote it down, mm -hmm. then you'd be like, oh, actually, it's the same process. I've got friends who write 25,000, trim it down to five. I can't write like that because I can't put it on a page like that. But it's the 25,000 will be in my head before I whittle it down to nothing. And I'm really proud because in a social media era, people are so busy, less is more. No one yeah. ever complains apart from publishers that a book is too short. People that read books are like, I'm glad it was a length where I could just read it, reread it, you know, in a couple of, like, someone read it twice. Someone read a, in the end, it's all about love. They read it twice in a day because it's short enough. Not because it's a great book, because it's short enough. And one of them, again, I, I want to believe that everybody who's listening to this 
has already read your stuff, but ah. we have to we have to assume that no, not everybody. No, no, no. Far from it. Yeah, far from it. So, assuming somebody listens to this is like, I need to go and look at these books that that this has been talking ah. about. One of them was 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 a crowd crowdfunding campaign. Yes, um, which um, myself and loads of problems. In fact, I in fact you can tell me. I think you must have been blown away by how many people got involved. I don't know what you were expecting. <laughs> I was blown away. We raised the, we raised the money in um, four and a half days. What were you expecting, truly? I I didn't. I do you know what it is? I I thought I I thought I'd gamble on backing myself because I didn't. The reason I crowdfunded the book was because look, I was despondent. I'd written in the end, it's all about love, and it was rejected by everyone <laughs> for a year. Everyone rejected yeah. that book for a year. Like, and it, it's come out now, it's been successful, but like for a year, that book was turned down by everyone. And I was like, again, I was despondent. I was like, oh, no one rates it. Well, no one seemed to rate it. Like no publisher yeah. seemed to back it or gamble on it. So I'm like, okay, go and try something else. At least if you crowdfund it, my expectations were so low. I was like, I'm not going to get published. So I was like, at least if I crowdfund it, that would be, if I could just get it funded somehow, then at least I can guarantee getting a book out. Yeah. And it'll give me some creative control because I could have gone and written the whole book and tried to sell it to a big publisher. But to be honest with you, by that point, I didn't, I thought if I try and write this book and sell it to like a publisher, like a penguin or what, actually, yeah, <laughs> cut that thing out. If I try and, <laughs> if I try and sell it to a big publisher, they will want like a sensational version. They mm-hmm. won't want the book that I give. Because the book that I've written doesn't name names. It's yeah. actually quite a dignified book, but it's quite yeah. measured. It's critical, but it's measured. And I thought, that is not a book people are going to take and be like, this is a bestseller. They're going to mm-hmm. want more juice. They'll be like, ah, oh, but who was that? Who worked yeah. with Boris? And I'm like, I don't want to write that book. Yeah. First of all, it's legally shaky ground to do that because people can hit you with a thousand lawsuits, take that out, take that out. But also mm-hmm. it's like, I'm talking about a structure. So yeah. I was not expecting this response. I was expecting to like hopefully raise the money over a few months a few months and I was blown away. You can see my Instagram. I'm like, Oh my God, we reached 80% of the target in like three days. Yeah. I could not believe it. It was, it blew my mind, man. But Musa, wasn't that in essence? And now you've told this story on, on yeah. the pod. It, this is now full circle. That yeah. crowdfunding campaign was in essence, a manifestation of all those earlier blogs, yes. all of that earlier content, which nobody, you thought no one was reading at the time. You go yes. full circle now to actually releasing a book through a medium that requires people support. to show support and yes. you get blown away by the level of support. But like I, I was say, blown things away. happen when they're supposed to happen. They do, they do. And you're right, because here's the thing now, you're completely right, Mash, because everything I'm doing, the what I'm so excited about, Everything I'm releasing is of the same quality. I look across, I'm like, Stadio is the same quality as in the end is all about love. Same with one of them, same with Striking Out. I'm so proud of Striking Out. All of those projects and Wrighty's House, Wrighty's House is a glorious bonus. I mean, like, mm. who would have thought we were working with Ian Wright on a podcast? You know, like, you know, he's just a, as, as real as a football person and as a, a sharper mind as you'd find in football. These are bonuses, man. These, this is, a, this is, these are riches. This is bounty. This is joy. And the exciting thing is, if it happened earlier, I wouldn't be doing all at once. I'm part of yeah. five projects. Yeah. I look around and I'm like, these are all things that emerged in the last two years and they're all equally at the level I'd want them to be. So actually, if you said to me, was it worth the wait? I'd be like, oh my God, absolutely. Oh my God. If you'd said to me, oh, by the way, it's all going to come at once. I'd be like, it's it's like it's, it's like a constant adrenaline rush. It's a thrill, man. It's like, 
I can't explain. And obviously you're someone that sourced audio from day one. And I have to say this, like your support, people like this. I was talked to Ryan about this a lot. There's people whose opinions really matter. Everyone's opinion matters, right? Evan's opinion really, really matters. But there are some people where you're like, and this is no disrespect to people that listen to us. I don't want to sound disrespectful to other listeners of Stadio. It's like there are people that understood exactly what you were trying to do from the very beginning. Before it had the validation of people getting on board with it or quoting it, or in some cases, um, shall we say, stealing. Stealing? <laughs> 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 listen, we'll, we'll, listen, that, I'm going to save that. I'm going to save listen, that for things, after something. Things stay in the drafts. <laughs> 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 keeps some things in the chamber. <laughs> but like, you were, <laughs> you know, like you were that you understood it immediately, and I will always be grateful. Um, I know Ryan is. We're always grateful for people who, who just got it, and that's why. Look, we every podcast is like biased. Oh my god, we have great listeners. We genuinely have great listeners. We have really smart people who are engaged, and they'll pull you up on stuff and they'll critique stuff in really interesting and thoughtful ways. We really appreciate all of them, man. I mean, I think the, the the best thing I can possibly say, and again, for those who've, for those who have an interest in football and are looking for a new podcast, I highly recommend uh, Stadio Football Podcast on the Ringer FC. Um, and I guess what I would say as well, and maybe you shouldn't even answer it, Musa, is that I think the podcast has set a bit of a standard for others to follow, not so much in what you do, how you do it. That's just my personal, that's my personal opinion. I, I just feel like actually in its own subtle way, people, oh, and I, I always say with this stuff as well, though, lockdown helped. Well, obviously, tragic time, pandemic was a tragic time for so many people all around the world, but the pandemic probably helped as well in terms of people training their ears on it and allowing, allowing it to kind of marinate. Um, and I think the proof is in the pudding in that I could identify, won't name any names, several podcasts where I think that kind of sounds a bit like Stadio. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, listen, who knows, man? Who knows? I mean, I feel like I feel like uh, with um, the, the lockdown, it's weird because it was a period where the world stopped. Yeah. Mm. And we may not experience anything like that again. I don't think we will in our lifetimes because it was it was novel then. Even if we lock down again, there'll be a precedent for it. Back then it was yeah. new to us, right? So we had that lockdown and it was funny because Stadio carried on and I carried on pumping out work. I just yeah. carried just putting stuff out. And they're like, oh my God, this dude is just like pumping out. <laughs> it was like everyone shut down their raves. They're like, oh, that guy's still raving in the corner. And I was like, <laughs> because the thing is, you learn to like rave by yourself. And this thing, being a performance poet actually helped me so much as a writer because we'll get to like things that one I want to talk about as, as we come to close is, is advice I have to people mm. about um, how to maintain your spirits and how to keep going. And I think weird enough, being a performance poet is good training for that because when you're a poet, you have like, you have to make an audience. It's not like being an MC where an audience exists or grime MC where you can go to grime nights, go to like raves. And there's like, as a poet, a lot of these platforms didn't it didn't exist at the scale that exists now mm. before they just didn't you had to like go out and create them yeah. and when you're forced to make a thing when you're forced to create a scene or not create a scene but grow a scene to grow demand you take no new listener or reader for granted yeah yeah 
Also, though, crucially, you learn to derive joy from the thing itself because you may never get where you want to. Yeah. So I'd say if there's any advice I had, there's two, there's two, two steps to it. You need to find joy in the thing itself because it may not yield what you want. And if you don't get what you want from it materially, which didn't happen for me for a long time, things have changed now. Thank God life has changed. But the other thing that saved me was find community. Mm-hmm. It's maybe the most important thing. Like I can talk about being a writer and I can talk about practical tips. I can say like, well, look, get a notebook and for the next two months, write down every day how you're feeling. Then over the next two months for every day, go back and look over your notes and look at the themes that occur the most often. That's what you need to write about. So that's a quick writing tip in terms of finding your voice. Look over your notebooks the last two months and look at the stuff that recurs the most. That's your voice. That's what you want to write about. That's your thing, right? Mm. Um, That's a quick writing tip. But the key tip I would say is you have to have community. People that love you, people that can say no to you, and people that can say to you constantly, is the dream worth the cost? Mm. But if it is worth the cost, if you decide it's worth the cost, we're with you 100%. And we'll never laugh at you. We'll never shame you. We'll never mock you for pursuing this because what you're doing is hard. And people need to be supported in doing hard things. So yeah, that's the advice I would I would give. It's just as well you knew how to end this without me having to <laughs> prompt you. Without me having to prompt you to, to have to end this episode. Moose, that was, that was beautiful. Um, and in a nutshell, everyone, that's what this podcast and these series of podcasts are all about Mm. fundamentally looking at these journeys that people have moose and i joked about it before press and record about ordinary people looking at these journeys that (laughs) ordinary people haven't how we how we traverse as as i kind of say in the descriptor the the choppy waters so to speak listen people believe it or not i didn't even touch probably three quarters of what Musa does. At no point did we mention BBX, BBXO. At yeah, no point yeah. did we mention that whatsoever. So that might have to be another episode at another time. But Whatever helps everyone, you, man. <laughs> <laughs> please, everyone, um, listen to this. Make sure you go down to the, the descriptors. In the descriptors will be a link to all of the, the books Musa's put out um, in the last two years or so. Please go and either purchase, download, if you're a Kindle person, you know what to do with all of that. Where to find Musa, where to find his music, where to find Stadio. Because of the, the thing with Musa is <laughs> the he can never done with Musa. He's doing everything <laughs> everywhere at all times. So, doing the most. <laughs> <laughs> so do check the links below. Um, um, if this is your first proper uh deep dive into to what makes uh Musa Konga t- tick, so that you can go and follow his work. But Musa final words so to speak thank you so much um thank you, you man to, you literally you. didn't have to do this uh i went out on a bit of a uh wing and a prayer trying to convince uh try, hoping that i could convince you to do this so it was an instant so yes for man was, for those listening it was an instant yes it was an instant <laughs> it, yes it, it was, was as well even, yeah. instant <laughs> yes but no seriously thank you so much musa and um that you you won't know it but there, there, there are significant. There's significant power in your words, um, because you you said it earlier, but probably not even in description about yourself per se. You, you, you consider what you're saying. It's so easy to make noise. It's much harder to make noise that has any kind of actual um, relevance um, and lessons for people to learn. So thank you so much, um, Musa, for giving up your time. Um, pleasure, much, much, much appreciated.
Ladies and gents, that's been the first ever episode of The Game is the Game. And that was the one with the author. Thank you and good night. Thank you for listening to The Game is the Game with Michelle St. Patrick Hewitt. If you enjoyed that episode and you'd like to find out more about the work I do, you can head to linktr.ee forward slash mashstpaddy. If you'd like to find me on Twitter, you can find me at mashstpaddy. And if you'd just like to email me about anything you're interested in or that episode made you think about or anything in particular, you can email me at mstpatrick at gmail.com. <laughs>